0: For nine years in a row, ranking Arizona's number one most trusted referral network, rosieonthehouse.com. Information that you can't get anywhere else. And 30 years of Rosie on the House.
1: 10 o'clock hour, that is our topic-specific hour where we bring in experts and guests from around the state. And focus on one area of your house, home, castle, or cabin. August has been Water Month here at Rosie on the House, which is a big part of our foundation. Uh, all this work, all this effort, you know, is only is as, as good as the foundation that we're building on top of. And a strong foundation, uh, even though it's built, uh, can be subject to water, uh, conditions under the soil. And so we've brought in... Bob Brown of Arizona Foundation Solution, who, Mr. Brown, well, let's first introduce the guest you've brought with you, Mr. Dave
0: Dethridge. Absolutely. I brought Dave Dethridge, the president of Copper State Engineering. Say hi, Dave. (laughs) Hey, Bob. (laughs) Hey, Romy. Glad to be here.
1: So your, give us a little bit about your background and the service that Copper State Engineering specializes in.
2: We are, uh, Copper State is a geotechnical civil engineering firm. We started it in 1996. My background is uh, I graduated from Arizona State University in 1980 with a master's degree in civil engineering with a specialty in foundations. Um, Since uh, 1996, uh, we've worked on about 4,500 jobs. Uh, A lot of them are uh, soils problem related where you you have collapsible, compressible soils, expansive soils, or inadequately compacted fill. Gets wet, settles, uh, or heaves under houses with the resultant damage. All of
1: those things triggered by water,
2: right? Exactly. <laughs> water is uh, pretty much the activator of uh, most of the soils problems we have.
1: And a lot of people, well, we hardly get enough. Seven inches of water. We're not talking a lot of rain here. What's the big deal? Well, we've got irrigation that we introduce into the properties um, because of the extreme highs and lows you know all those seven inches it's not like it's spread out we get those in a couple different rainstorms here and there so we have large quantities coming very fast drying up very fast it creates very reactive conditions in the soil and one of the interesting things when we were putting this program together i was thinking about bob is i don't know 15 20 years ago i remember being on job site with you in awatuki which was an old proving ground at one point so this
0: entire community is built over a lot of moved earth (laughs) right right that's exactly right that's where they would go and test the tractors and of course a lot of dirt got moved around and nothing was uh, compacted in a controlled way and so there's been some issues up there as a result of that
1: and you were talking that so many of these cases where it looks like what people think is settling well the opposite's happening you're dealing with heaving situations and you say you know if we could ever figure out a way to deal with a heave um, it we, we could solve a lot of these problems better. Well, fast forward, you've you've kind of been the mastermind behind this uh this your own little patented process to deal with heaving.
0: Correct. And I you know, I have to give credit to Dave because it was really a lot of his ideas that pushed us in this direction. I mean, Dave was talking about this project that he had where he had some issues and wrote a paper. Dave, why don't you tell a little bit about it?
2: I, I was for a period of time working for an environmental engineering company and we were putting in wells and evaporating uh, gasoline uh, where there were leaks at gas stations out of the ground. In the process we noticed that not only were we getting gasoline vapor out, but we were getting uh, moisture out. And if you're in an arid environment, uh, similar to Maricopa County, if you're drawing moist air out, you're drawing dry air in and what we saw in some cases was as we dried the soil, if it was clay uh, and it was moist clay to start with, it would dry out and shrink as it dried out. So we were actually worried about that. If we, if we dried the soils under these gas stations, we were worried we were going to damage the buildings. Uh, fast forward to today, if you've got expansive soil that is being wetted under a building, you can extract air, extract uh, and dry the soils uh, in the process, Because we're in an arid environment, the air that comes back in is drier than what you're pulling out, and you can cause these wet, expansive soils to either stop expanding or, in some cases, to dry out and shrink back to where they were.
1: And all of this as it relates to the soils that's under our home. Every square inch of our home is built on top of a soil. And last hour, I kind of got high-centered on this concept of building a a perfect home. And when I was building, I know, Bob, you were saying, if we would just put, you know— structural pens underneath these foundations at the beginning, we would never have to come back and do this. What, what does the perfect foundation and soil condition for you look like?
0: Well, I think the foundation needs to be uh, designed with the soil conditions on site. So the, the first thing to do is to get a good geotech and do an investigation and then design your foundation accordingly. And, you know that could involve piles maybe you know it's all a matter of cost if sure if you want to spend the money but maybe you don't really need to based on the soil conditions.
1: And when we're putting in uh, a foundation in a home there's a couple different ways that it's poured. There's the conventional slab on grade, and then there's a post tension that what is that about a 25 30 year old practice? that that Uh, became mainstream
0: uh, they started building post-tension slabs regularly around 2003 so it's been about 15 years or so
1: and what has that time frame shown you guys is that a better practice or do you like the conventional slab on grade
0: i i personally like the, the, the 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 slab on grade the conventional system better personally because there's the problem with the post-tension system is it just doesn't have any edge protection. It, water can get under it super easy, and nowadays they're building them really thin, five inches thick, which I think is a little bit uh, insane. Dave, I don't yeah, know if you po- have
2: a... post-tension slabs are, are flexible. Uh, I think they're oversold as being a, uh, a mitigation for soils problems. A lot of times they do less prep. In the, a site that has post tension, and that, that's not a good idea. Conventional foundations, a three three pour foundation system, you have an 18 inch deep cutoff all the way around the house. With, like Bob was saying, uh, with the post tension slab, you have just a slab that's buried maybe four or five inches uh, on the perimeter of the house. Water can get under the house. Roots can also very easily get under the house and extract water. There's areas that have been historically irrigated, uh, Gilbert. Uh, for example, where you have expansive clays, those clays are wet when they start building on top of them. And one of the problems is they're pre-expanded, Uh, if you build a house on top and roots from mesquite trees or palverti trees get under there and they withdraw that water from those expanded moist clays, the clays shrink and it looks like settlement. The end of the house will go down two or three inches. The house will crack up and break and you're going, oh, do I have settlement? No. What you've got is shrinkage of clays that were historically irrigated and it's relatively common in the valley for this condition. Now, it would take significant
1: roots. I don't know that a home has ever had to You know, been in danger of not being structurally sound, even with that type of cracking. But who, you don't have a sellable property at that point, though. Who's going to buy that?
0: Right. It's all, it all has to do with what they call serviceability. It's, it's rarely the house going to fall down, rarely, almost never. But, you know, it's a serviceability issue. That's what they call fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so it, it, it's all basically serviceability. I mean, do the doors function right? Do the windows function right? Can you sell the house? Is it you know it, you know are you embarrassed to bring your family over to look at it? Those are serviceability issues.
1: Yeah, I understand the need for our housing to be affordable for people to buy and move into, but it just the, the amount of sacrifice and structural soundness that they'll give up for convenience and luxury that are temporary just has always baffled me build invest in the structural soundness of it and then later you can add on the glitz and the glamour that you might want or the extra media center the upgraded countertops you know all these things that are uh that are going to be replaced eventually anyway don't build a foundation you're going to need to replace that's that
0: gets pretty expensive because you have to get back down to the foundation right right (laughs) And, and 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 Home builders just don't have that kind of long term thinking. It's they, they blow and go. They build as cheaply as they can and put all the upgrades that you can see, and, and don't worry about the ones you can't see.
1: And and what do you leave into the next family or the next five families? There there's not going to be, and the amount of construction debris and waste that just ends up back in landfills, that has to get mined back out of some new site anyway. It's just, it, it's such a waste of raw materials.
0: Well, we, we've uh, we're we're working on a building now that's built on top of a landfill, and it's had about 15 inches of settlement.
1: 15 inches. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, I, I won't ask. I was I'm the <laughs> next question. Where? What landfill? <laughs> uh, we won't. We'll save that for another time. So, what are signs that homeowners can I use to identify? And your your home will tell you if it's shrinking, cracked. Cracking,
0: shrinking, Absolutely. heaving.
1: Well, what are those obvious signs?
0: Well, the easiest one is to look at your drywall. Uh, it's be- It's a better indicator than stucco because stucco has thermal uh, expansion and contraction. Uh, so I look try to look at the drywall, look at windows, look at doors, look at your sloping your floor. That's the basic ones to look at.
1: And we're not talking just foundations either. Uh, I know I remember a project working that y'all did with us where a. We don't build homes with fireplaces in Maricopa County and other counties in Arizona anymore. But our true wood-burning fireplace, the foundation on it had started to slip away on one side, and the fireplace was coming off the home, and we just kind of stood it back up and right. rebuilt the foundation underneath it.
0: Yeah, and, and, and that can either be from the foundation, the, the, the settling, it can be from that, or it could be from heaving in the middle of the home, pushing the, the fireplace and chimney out. So it's easy to get settlement and heave mixed up. So, if you've got uh, what you think may
1: be a foundation problem, or you do have one and you want to know the next course of action, or talk it through, or get a second opinion, one triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you. We'll put you right in touch with the studio and Mr. Bob Brown and Dave Deathridge. Sounds like I need like a heavy metal intro for you, You Duthbridge. got it. You go. Alice Cooper lives like six miles away. Maybe he will come do the intro for Dave Dethridge <laughs> here at Rosie on the House. We'll be right back. You could argue a lot of things about what's the most important component of your home and all the different systems, but it's only good as the foundation it's built on them. That's what we're talking about today. If you have foundation problems, uh, what's the next step, Bob? How do you identify it's if it's a heave, if it's a uh, shrink, if it's a, a water problem that's just you know deteriorated, that portion of your foundation needs to get replaced? How, how's that problem
0: diagnosed? Well, we strongly believe that you should follow uh, an engineered process. So we follow a level B investigation as published by the Foundation Performance Association. And on my blog, foundationaz.com, I list 12 things that need to be really looked at. And there's a whole bunch of them. But uh, floor level surveys, one of the main things, a damage map. Uh, You want to look at the soil conditions. You want to look at aerial maps. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things. It's not just one thing.
1: And when you say look at the map, are you, y'all still do the manometer survey? Yep. <laughs> yep, that's a floor-level survey. That's correct. <laughs> Which sounds like it's extremely technical. What I love about that, you're using water yeah, levels. That's right. I love those simple, obvious things that you don't overcomplicate it.
0: <laughs> right, and, and we take that very simple tool and we draw a, a two-scale floor plan of the house and we plot uh, it into a computer and it draws topo lines and then from that we get very valuable data. How do you think uh, how
1: different would forest service maps look if they use uh, water levels to check their <laughs>
0: topography? How, how do they what again?
1: Uh, oh, I was just, just a silly question. How much different would forest service maps look? Oh, done that were you know put together in the '60s if we redid them with a water manometer today?
0: Right. Yeah, you never know. <laughs>
1: they look a little different. So we've got the manometer survey and it lets us know. You know, what should have been in most homes and especially on the desert floor, a flat foundation and floor grade, it lets us see rise and falls through the home. And
2: and to that point, um, you know, we've done hundreds of these manometer surveys and a brand spanking new house should have less than about three-quarters of an inch of difference between the highest and lowest point. If you get a house that's experiencing some problems, if the doors are racking, the windows aren't opening, uh, there's cracks in the drywall, usually if it's a soils-related problem, you're going to have an inch and a half, inch and three-quarters, maybe two or three inches of difference between the high and low points. And the beauty of the manometer survey is once you run it, you see what's high, you see what's low, then you look for sources of moisture around those high and low areas. But that also establishes a baseline. And if you're going to do improvements, trying to fix what these problems are, you can come back in six months, a year later, rerun the manometer survey and see if you've stabilized it or if it's still going up or still going down. It's really a, a very accurate and a handy tool to use to monitor the movements after you've run it the first time.
1: So that's just one aspect of your of your twelve points is the manometer survey. Correct. What what else on that list
0: am I? Well, I I firmly believe that it doesn't do much good to do a floor level survey without damage associated with it Uh, it could have been poured out of level you don't know what's going on unless you have the valuable data of a a manometer survey over time which is super valuable but most of the time you don't get that luxury and so you have to make inferences and the way you do that is by overlaying the 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 damage on top of the floor level survey and see if, is the damage in the high areas is it in the low areas what's causing it where do we think tinge points are what kind of patterns do we look at and how does the damage correspond with the highs and lows in the slab that's a, that those two are really valuable there's a bunch of others we want to know what the soil conditions are we want to look at the aerials we want to see where the landscaping vegetation is uh, we want to look at the precipitation we want to look at the foundation type there's uh, you know there's Five or six. Did I miss any major ones, Dave? I don't think so.
1: And when you were talking about the damage assessment, I remember one project on a home where we were on site just observing a manometer survey for our reference and to see the the, how these are how to put one together. The whole reason this homeowner called to begin with is he got tired of hearing his attic popping. There was nothing on the wall. Um, or floor that was indicating anything, but it was the stress point of the structure, the, strut, the s- trusses in the attic popping from the home settling, or I, I think it was actually a heave in this point. It turned out to be the a, a root from an Aleppo pine that had to get removed as a result of it.
0: Right, and, and, and sometimes you can just hear popping noises from the attic just from thermal expansion and contraction. You have to be careful not to jump to conclusions, but certainly that's one thing you want to pay attention to.
1: So Well, we've got um, Alvin. We've got a couple more questions I'm going to ask you, but we are here for you, the Arizona listener, at one 767 We'll see how we can help Alvin here on his home. Welcome to the program.
0: Thank you. Uh, my home is similar to one you guys were describing earlier in your program. Uh, it's built three feet into the ground. It's kind of like a tri-level.
2: You walk in, you either go up or you go down. And I'm seeing some of the issues you're talking about. My door's not closing, and there's little stress points on the door. It's not cracking the drywall bad yet, but you can see it. And it feels
0: like there's little bumps in the floor. And I was wondering, how would you fix that? Because you can't really go in from the outside. You would have to do everything from the inside. Yeah, it probably you know. First of all, before we jump to conclusions, we'd want to make sure we know what the problem is. You know, we, we want to have it clearly defined. We want to make sure we understand it. So a good investigation would determine: okay, do we have some moisture gathering underneath there? Do we have some heave going on? Do we have some shrinkage? Maybe some consolidation? And and all of these investigations, I feel, should be overseen by by an engineer. Uh, but but that's that's the place to start. Uh, what what part of town are you in?
2: I'm in Chandler.
0: Okay. Well, Chandler has uh, some expansive clays, so you very well could have some of that going on.
1: And in a tri-level home, a lot of those cases where the first floors have very there's irrigated lots. Are you on an irrigated or a dry lot?
0: A dry lot. Okay. I, I am next to a greenbelt, though, and they water that pretty heavily. So
1: Well, hang tight. We can do a lot of things, but we can't stop the clock. The news signal is bringing the bottom of the hour news. We'll be back here at Rosie on the House right after this. Continue our conversation on your foundation. And right now we're in Alvin's house. What we think is uh, probably about a 1970s home tri-level next to a green belt. We kind of that was about the time that those homes were really popular. And, uh, Mr. Jethro, you were talking about those tri-levels and the extra load the foundation has uh, during the break. I'm going to have you.
2: Absolutely. You can have two, three times the uh, normal foundation load on a multi-level home. And all that extra weight on soil that uh, if it's compressible when it gets wet, you'll get that much more settlement. And then Bob was making the note that if there's a basement— uh, frequently the basement backfill for those walls is not adequately compacted if there's a footing anywhere near that backfill it can settle that much more with the extra load from the upper stories on it
1: so how is a what is the best practice for a, a quality backfill
0: well you should always backfill in layers but uh, I can tell you that need... nobody got time for that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that even if they do a really good job of backfilling, if they compact it, it to 100%, they're still going to still have some settlement with it. You should never put a, a footing on, on backfill material.
2: That's my, uh, when I write a geotech investigation, uh, I say, you know, maybe a foot or two, but no more than that. Right. Uh, if we're building on the sides of the mountains where there's large deep fills, 10, 15 feet of fill, we'll extend those footings all the way through that fill to get down into the native uh, rock or soils to limit the future settlements.
1: Because it's a lot—it seems like, you know, a lot of added expense up front, but done right, you're going to save a lot of money because you think the infrastructure is expensive. Try a repair.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, it's I'm continually amazed by people who build customs homes and won't spend $3,000 for a geotech (laughs) investigation. It's like you're building, you know, a million-dollar home— you don't think it's a good idea to protect it with $3,000 of information to make sure your house is built on the right soil. It just amazes me. Or even if you know we're going to build it here and it's bad soil, well, then you change how
1: it's built. Right. You can accommodate for it once you know about it. That's right. <laughs> so let's just assume that uh, we're going to assume a couple different things just to hear the process f- to educate the listener. Let's assume that he's in a situation, Alvin, in this tri-level home where he's got a settling problem. How do you deal with that that far underground?
0: Well usually when you have a settlement problem uh, you want to bypass those soils with some sort of a structural element like a helical pile or a micropile or a push pile. Uh, Those are are usually the instruments of choice for uh, stabilizing a, a footing and you drive those down past the soft soils until they lock up into the really hard soils and then you lift the house up uh, and stabilize it with those and leave them in place, basically. And it's a—I won't say—I I shouldn't say fun
1: because nobody wants to deal with these, these kind of problems. But it is fun to see because it's it's all done at once. So the whole house will get lined up or the whole affected area. You're not doing it one pile at a time. You get them all set, and it's hydraulically lifted at the same time.
0: Correct. And then— So once it's lifted, we have a void. Do we just leave that void? No, we typically will either mudjack or polyfill underneath the slab uh, to fill that void that's kind of right next to the foundation there and kind of tie it in with the footing a little bit.
1: And then those piles are then just buried there in the soil and left to stabilize the home forever. forever. Correct.
2: Yeah, they'll outlast the house. What, what's really cool is when you're raising the house, if you've got significant damage on the inside, if the doors are racked, the you've got cracks in the drywall, you raise this house and you see these cracks close up and the doors, you know, get level. And it, that's really neat.
1: And, and it instantly you just feel better. I mean, yeah. it's like all that stress is a stress crack. <laughs> all that stress is just gone. <laughs> right. That's right. And so that's an a settle. What if this is a heaving situation that he's dealing with?
0: Well, first of all, you have to identify it correctly, and that's that's easier said than done. You can easily we can maybe have a whole segment to talk about that, but if you discover that you have heave, then the best thing to do is to try to remove water the best way you can. Now, you can do that with gutters and drainage. Those are good things to do, but those are going to remove water around the perimeter, and many times the water's already accumulated in the middle. So now that's why Dave and I worked long and hard to develop the moisture level system that basically removes water where it's got its highest concentration, in the middle of the house. And
1: you're much deeper in the soil on a tri-level home than, uh, obviously, uh, something built on top of the soil. Does that add any complications because of the thermal, you know, being
0: six feet underground, as opposed to six inches? Um, it, it changes a few dynamics. Um, you, you'll you probably get less water down deep like that. But on the other hand, you've removed overburden. So if you have clays that, that are down there and you've removed overburden, now those clays want to expand up. So it does change a few dynamics. You just, it, it would treat it the same way. But, uh, uh, and talk through the, how the system for heave that you've, kind of uh engineered here works right so so what we did is we uh set up a vacuum system that creates a sub-slab depressurization system under the slab and we we a hole in the slab and run a a four-inch riser up through the attic where a vacuum is and it pulls uh air out of that abc layer that's under the slab and then it brings dry air from the perimeter in and that process of bringing dry air through dries out the clays that are underneath the ABC layer. And those clays, once they get dried out, then they can't heave anymore. And then sometimes they shrink. And the mo- moisture source could be, you know,
1: an underground stream that's—or a river oh, That I,
2: I would love to talk about that for just a minute. <laughs> sure. There, there are so many different sources of moisture. Uh, when you talk about the underground stream, up in the Troon area in North Scottsdale— you've got uh, maybe 10, 15 feet of decomposed granites over solid granite rock. When we go through one of our wet um, El Nino-type winters where there's a lot of rain in uh, December, January, February, you get so much water that falls right through the uh, decomposed granites, hits that granite layer, solid granite, and then moves down. And it, it, there's so much moisture in there. Uh, and it's just—it's every 10 years when you have an El Nino. But that moisture, uh, like you said, it's an underground river. Uh, if there's basements, it'll flow into basements there, and they've never seen it for the last 10 years. But all of a sudden, here's all this water. So it's—it's it's periodic water. Other sources of moisture, uh, I don't know if you've walked around the perimeter of your house in August and September, but your air conditioner is sucking out 100, 200 gallons of water a month and dumping it right at your perimeter of your home, typically. You don't want that water to be there, but that's a a source of water. You need to move that away from your house. Uh, For the listeners, do that. Extend the drip condensates away from your house so that you're not dumping all that water right on your footing. And probably the next biggest thing how is how far six uh, inches, move it twelve 10 inches, feet away. 10 feet. Move it ten feet away. Cost you about fifteen dollars. Put a little three-quarter inch PVC pipe, route it underneath, bring it back up, drip it. I use it to water my tortoise. Uh, <laughs> I've got a little tortoise watering hole. Uh, but get it away from the house. Uh, it'll help with uh, termites also because termites need that water. You don't need to be depositing that water right on the perimeter of the house. Underground uh, irrigation valve boxes. Those plastic. Plastic things that they bury uh, two feet away from your footing; those things, if they're not leaking now, they're going to leak. Spend $200, 300 bucks, move those 10, 15 feet away from the perimeter of your house. That will, that when they when they start leaking, they'll wet a thirty foot radius. It'll go halfway into your house. It's a it's just a disaster waiting to happen. Move those things away to give yourself a chance to have uh, drier soils underneath the house.
1: It's it's fascinating. Just the. I mean, when you think about that every fifteen years. Back to what you were saying and the underground. What's underneath the soil that goes down there? Uh, it's it's a fascinating world that's underneath our feet and uh, the amount of you would mention termites. What is it? Every an average of fourteen colonies per acre they estimate of termites that that are out there in the native soil. That you know we only create conditions for them to thrive on when we slap a stick and stucco house right on top of their their colony right
2: <laughs> and a termite has to return to the ground every 24 hours to get a drink of water so if you remove that drink of water the termite's going to say gosh i'm going to go somewhere find else
0: another <laughs> source of water right there's other sources of moisture i mean just the the fact that you have uh, clay suction you have rains that happen poor drainage it soaks down in the soil. You have dry, dry clays in the middle. The, the, the moisture is pulled in towards those dry clays and it and accumulates. Uh, you have heat differential. You have very hot outside, very cool inside. The moisture sucks towards that. And then you have what they call the stack effect, where you have uh, dry air that moves up through and up to the attic of the house and gets sucked in down below, and that's how radon gets into houses. That brings water vapor too, but when the water vapor reaches the center of the house, and it cools off. It condensates, condenses, and basically now it can't go through, so it's deposited right in the middle. There's lots of sources of moisture that get into houses. And radon's one. It's been a while since we've covered that on the
1: air with you, but just spend a moment on radon because that sure that's a fascinating topic in
0: and of itself. We could designate a whole other hour to. Oh, you really could. I mean, radon is a radioactive gas that comes from the ultimate decay of uranium, Deep in the deep in the soil, and as it makes its way up, it gets trapped, and it's radioactive. If it gets in your lungs, it will cause lung cancer.
2: Well, and I would just add that uh, granite rock is is the the local source of uh, this this radon gas. North Scottsdale, there's a lot of granite, uh, and uh, it's uranium decaying in that granite that produces the uh, the radon gas. And normal ventilation of a home will get rid of that, but if you've got a basement or if you've got rooms that the doors are closed and you're not getting good uh, ventilation, that's where you're going to get accumulations of radon gas that can be uh, a health health concern.
1: And is there, we've got uh, fire alarms, we have uh, carbon monoxide alarms, or is there a radon alarm if you're living in a heavy granite uh, area like uh, the Dells and Prescott or the boulders in Scottsdale, or the foothills in Tucson.
2: There's a, a test that you run, and you run it for uh, a day or two. You have to you open a, a container; it'll uh, absorb whatever the okay. radon gas is, and then uh, you send that somewhere uh, to a place where they'll measure it, give you back a thing, and uh, they'll tell you if you have unhealthful uh, radon levels or not. I even I, I did a warehouse uh, in, on 43rd Avenue in Indian School many years ago. It's it's there's no Granted, anywhere near it, but it had been closed for two years, and it had unhealthful levels of radon gas just because it was closed up. And the solution was open the doors and let get some air in there, and uh, you know, a day or two later, it was fine. But uh, you don't want to be working in these places with uh, the unhealthful levels of radon.
1: Yeah, every home, every structure has its own aroma when you walk into it. That you know, after about the first 10, 15 seconds, you stop noticing it till you walk out and come back in. Is there something? That should trigger your mind if you walk into.
0: It, you're like, oh, that's that's radon. No, it's uh, odorless. Uh, you can't see it. The only way to know is to test for it, and it's super cheap and easy. You can buy the kits for fifteen dollars. You can get them for free from the state of Arizona, azrra.gov. One more time, A-Z. azrra. azrra.gov. Gov. Gov. And we also do. We have a continuous a monitor that we monitor the levels of radon through a continuous monitor that we install and leave on site. And it measures the levels over a period of time and gives a printout of it. And what level is is critical? I mean, is, is it a parts per million level that they're right. measuring? Four picocuries per liter is the... <laughs>
1: P- that's right, picocuries.
0: <laughs> yeah, picocuries. That's a billionth of a curie uh, uh, per, per liter of air. And uh, that's the actionable level from the EPA. Uh, The World Health Organization says 2.7. So there's a little bit of difference there. But, I mean, it's kind of like splitting hairs. You get down to 4 and 2.7, you're probably good. You know, you want to avoid things like 11 or 12 or 15. That's where you run into problems. And that's all solved just with ventilation? Well, it's a sub-slab depressurization system, similar to what we use with the moisture level. You wanna evacuate the air under the foundation. Talking foundation solutions with Arizona
1: Foundation Solutions. In studio with Bob Brown of Arizona Foundation Solutions and special guest, Copper State Engineering president and chief engineer, Mr. Dave Dethridge talking soil conditions for a strong reliable foundation and whether it's heaving or settling there is a solution now there are a lot of, there was a time in the past where a heave it was kind of like well what are we going to do but y'all have developed a solution that what's the price difference from a heave solution to a settlement solution or is it about the same cost investment fixing one or the other it's actually
0: quite a bit more hang on just a second okay it's actually a quite a bit more cost-effective to uh, remediate a heave. Uh, the typical system is somewhere between four dollars and $8,000. And a, peer, a peering projects they're usually $1,500 per peer. So you could easily have 10 peers and be $15,000 or $30,000. So determining the proper uh, problem, is it a heave or a settle, is pretty critical. And right. It's- pretty easy to get it wrong. (laughs) It's really easy to get it wrong. It's amazing. And I see guys on YouTube all the time where they're walking around in the house and they're noting cracks in the floor and they're seeing a little bit of slope and they're saying, well, this means that there's settlement. And there's just, I mean, I've gone to a house many times and looked at it and thought I knew the answer, but it really needs to be carefully uh, analyzed and overseen by an engineer.
2: And I don't, Dave, I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Well, and, you know, the, the best way to confirm positively what it is is to drill, take soil samples, do lab testing, and determine if it's expansive soil, what's its moisture content, is it going to tend to swell or shrink when it gets wet. Uh, not cheap. It's going to cost you $3,000 to go out and drill, sample, and test uh, a site's soil. But in some cases, if you're thinking of spending $100,000 the the whatever the problem is, that's money well spent.
1: Yeah, like Bob was saying, if you're— 1500
0: per pier how, how far are you spacing these piers usually uh eight feet on center maybe up north where you have snow loads maybe six feet on center so in a non-snow
1: condition we're eight feet and you've got a 300 foot uh parameter around this room you know that 1500 every eight feet ch-ching, 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 ch-ching. Yep. adds up <laughs> fast adds so, up fast and where you're doing a extract with your vacuum system for a heave, you know, that $3,000 on a wrong diagnosis could save you thousands of dollars.
0: Yeah, and and, and you, you don't really probably most of the time need to go and do a soil boring. 90% of the time, you if you do a really good investigation and if you do it right with the engineer that oversees it, you can get it right. Uh, ten percent of the time you got to go get bigger guns and go get more information, and that's when you really want to pull out all the stops. Well, we've got uh, a great resource.
1: Your your website is just loaded with great content on foundations and uh, radon. You've got incredible articles on your blog as it relates to uh, stem wall repair, cracking, uh, concrete leveling. Even we even touched on crawl spaces.
0: Correct. Yeah. It's a whole
1: nother subject. And that website? Uh, the website is foundationrepairwithrosie.com Foundation Repair with Rosie and you can see uh, additional articles, resources, imaging. You can get a... Uh, so there's some pictures on there on what these piers look like. You've got a, a great shot there of one, two, three, four, five, six lined up on a quarter of a block home that's just about to get raised. Right, right. So
0: pretty... It, it sounds like Very intrusive work, but it's really not. It's Most of it's on the perimeter, so it doesn't affect the inside of the house unless you're doing a little bit of poly, but that's not all that intrusive either. You're just talking about
2: drilling a small hole the size of a dime. (laughs) I know know that Bob did a a job many years ago where it was a post-tension slab that he was re-leveling, and they had a child care uh, uh, business inside the home, and they were running that while Bob was undermining and underpinning the home. So they didn't have to leave.
1: That's, that's pretty d- non-intrusive. Yep. And when we're talking about getting a soils test, what's our time on that? I mean, how long does that coring and that drilling and that processing take?
2: Oh, if, you know, for my company, we'll they call us, uh, you have to get blue staked, Make sure there's no buried utilities when you're drilling, but typically, we'll within a week we'll do the field work, and then a week later we'll have a report for people. That's new homes or even these uh, problem homes.
1: But settling and heaving in both cases generally is a very slow process, so it's not like, you know, we're in a rush to keep something
2: from falling into the, you
1: know, unless it's a fissure, we can't do anything
2: about that. You know, that's ninety percent of the time that's true, but there are some compressible soils, uh, say in uh, Tucson. There's forty feet of what we call collapsible compressible soils. And there have been recorded instances where, if you have a pipe uh, break or something where you get 12 inches of settlement overnight, the whole house cracks in half. Uh, so they, it can happen. There fast. are extreme cases. That's
1: right. So, And a phone number, I, people sure. rarely remember, but we do still have people that they'll call me on Monday and gripe at me because I didn't say this number enough or slow enough
0: for them to write sure. down because
1: they don't use computers. <laughs>
0: All right. So the phone number is 602-702-5390. And y'all are based out of Phoenix, but I mean, y'all have done projects for us and
1: Sholo and Flagstaff and Prescott and Tucson. I mean, y'all, y- y- y'all aren't afraid of the road. We <laughs> cover the whole state. And because it's one of those services and when it's done, it'll last a lifetime. Correct. You can travel that far distance because you're not worried about having to send a guy out to do a warranty repair in two years. Correct. So Bob Brown of Arizona Foundation Solutions, thank you for your time this Saturday, along with Dave Dethridge of Copper State Engineering. You can find this podcast at Rosie on